I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Monday, July 5th, 2022, the 531st day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. I hope you all had a wonderful 4th of July and that you got to see some fireworks, eat some food from the grill, jump in a pool, wave a flag, have a piece of cake. Whatever it was you did, I hope you didn't blow your fingers off. I also hope that you weren't subjected to a drone light show rather than actual fireworks. Apparently, that's a thing now. Like everything is the Chinese Olympic ceremony. Explosions for celebration. Well, that is so last century. Now what we want to do is put a swarm of robots in the sky and make your kids think that they're beautiful so they'll never worry for the rest of their lives about the fact that those same robots are tracking them around everywhere. 
a surveillance state, but a a very happy one, a surveillance state you're happy to live with. It would be like if one day you found out that the Christmas lights on your tree as a child were also watching you. I'm sure it will be fun in the dystopian future when all fireworks are replaced by drone light shows. And then the environmentalists tell us that it is just too much of a drain of a city's power supply to be able to do the drone light show. So it turns out there's not going to be anything. And to further dampen your holiday, they had a series of large shootings. But as usual, I'll let that stuff play out a bit before addressing it. Maybe we're getting to the point where we don't need to address it at all because everyone immediately sees them for exactly what they are. The details of these incidents are always far too similar. And of course, they are immediately moving to try to get rid of gun rights. CNN has moved to clarifying that the injuries of the victims are essentially wartime injuries, which means they must have been inflicted with weapons of war, and therefore we have to take your guns away. The Philadelphia mayor wants to disarm all Americans except for the police, which they formerly wanted to defund. And the fact that they go after Fourth of July parades should be no surprise. Let's not forget they went after a Christmas parade and had some felon drive a car through the Christmas parade, crushing people in Waukesha, Wisconsin. I don't know how, but they are apparently calculating that attacking Americans' holidays will make Americans give up on their holidays rather than get angry at the people who are clearly attacking their holidays. But I hope you had a good one. Now, if you're listening to this on Tuesday, July 5th, or really any time before the morning of July 7th, that means you're listening to it on Substack. And that is the exclusive place to get the podcast when episodes come out. I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can sign up as a paid subscriber and always be the first to get the podcast and the writing and anything else I do. You will have access to all of that. It breaks down to like, 20 cents, 25 cents an episode, and you get the writing just as a bonus, as little as $50 a year, $5 a month, and you can help support me and support the work I do. That is if you like it. And so I would encourage you to continue doing that. If you're having difficult times financially, as many of us are, myself included, you can access the podcast on Rumble by waiting a couple of days and if you want, you can reach out and contact me. There are some people in the Telegram chat who have graciously offered to fund a few year-long subscriptions to the podcast for people who are a bit down on their luck right now. So feel free to reach out if that describes you. Now I want to pick up where I left off a bit on Friday, which is discussing the potential teardown of the administrative state in the wake of the Supreme Court decision on West Virginia versus EPA, because the impact of this decision could potentially be enormous. I think and suspect it will be. I would bet that it will be. That is the direction things are trending in. We are pushing things toward the ideal. That is the job. The ideal is returning to a constitutional republic and abiding by the Constitution, 
in the operation of our government. And that has not been the case for a very long time. A return to that would cause a lot of things to change in this country. I think we've all had enough with unelected bureaucrats deciding the rules that govern our lives and can change those on a dime. This is from Axios this morning. The Supreme Court's next target is the executive branch. And you gotta love the headline. The Supreme Court exists to provide a check on the power of the executive branch and on the power of the legislative branch for that matter. It is the job of the Supreme Court to make sure that the legislative branch and the executive branch don't do things that aren't allowed by the Constitution. That's their actual job. It's not to support social justice warriors opinions on gender and abortion and pretend that all things are constitutional as long as the loudest people on television say they're necessary. Battles over executive power will likely define a lot of the conservative Supreme Court's future. Abortion has been the single biggest animating force in the conservative legal movement for decades. Now that the Supreme Court has overturned Roe versus Wade sooner than some advocates expected, other long-term projects will absorb much of the right's legal and political energy. That will likely include voting rights, as well as a sustained effort to restrict the authority of regulatory agencies in the executive branch. And as I've mentioned, they're right about that assessment of the Roe decision. It is going to change a whole lot of things. It's going to change campaigns because now Democrats are not going to simply say that they want to protect a woman's right to choose. It's all about a woman's right to choose. They're going to actually have to argue why abortion is a good and necessary thing. And they're not going to be able to make that argument. They've done a terrible job of making it in the last three weeks. They tried the woman's choice thing, my body, my choice. Nobody believes them anymore on that after vaccine mandates. They tried to sell it as a privacy rights issue. The same people who are invading your privacy in every way imaginable are saying that. And when they realize those aren't working, they just begin talking about how women are going to start dying because of lack of access to abortion. And I guess they assume that that'll work because people are dying at higher rates than ever. And it's not because the vaccine, it's conspiracy theory for you to even think that. But it's certainly going to reshuffle the legal priorities in the conservative movement. And perhaps we'll be able to move away from the Roe versus Wade discussion and make sure that Supreme Court justice nominations in the future will be committed to correcting our form of government and ensure that the people's representation is as it was meant to be. These cases may not always feel like blockbusters in isolation, but they can constrain federal power in ways that are almost impossible to reverse with dramatic implications that cut across multiple policy areas. Ah, they're saying all the right things. Just in the past few months, the court prevented the CDC from enforcing an eviction moratorium due to COVID. Yeah, good. The CDC shouldn't have any business in telling landlords that they should allow tenants to live at their buildings for an unlimited amount of time while not paying rent. They prevented OSHA from enforcing a vaccine mandate in workplaces. And now they've prevented the EPA 
from carrying out some of its most aggressive proposed limits on greenhouse gases. Some of those issues are bigger than others, but each of those cases raised questions about overarching legal principles related to executive branch authority. Taken together, it's clear which direction things are headed. The federal government is going to be able to do a lot less than it has been able to do in the past. But the justices are not necessarily united on the specifics of how best to get there or how far to go. Several of the court's conservative justices are highly skeptical of Chevron deference. The principle that if a particular law isn't clear on its face, the courts will generally defer to the interpretation of the agency tasked with implementing that law. In striking down EPA regulations, the OSHA vaccine mandate and the CDC's eviction moratorium, the court leaned heavily on a different but related legal test known as the major questions doctrine. And we discussed a bit of that on Friday. It holds that executive branch agencies can't rely on the general authority they've received from Congress in order to justify particularly sweeping actions. If Congress had intended for the CDC to be able to halt evictions all across the country, the court said it would have needed to say so explicitly. And again, that's the only way that this makes sense in a government of by and for the people. If Congress had to vote on these things rather than just letting the executive branch do whatever it wanted so that there's no accountability for anyone except for the president and not even really there either. Our representatives would actually have to take a position and they would have to return to their districts and be able to tell the people why they took that position. There was an op-ed over the weekend about how the Democrats need to be scared of their voters once again. They actually need to listen to their voters. And of course, it was written by a leftist and was basically making the case that they're not going hard enough on the communism. But nonetheless, the point remains that Democrats don't care about what their voters think. And the truth is, they don't care about what anybody thinks. Look at what's happened for the last year and a half and try to convince yourself that the people making these decisions are worried about elections at all. They're not governing like they're worried about elections. They're not talking like they're worried about elections. Why wouldn't politicians be worried about elections? At the outer bound of this campaign is the non-delegation doctrine, a theory that Congress cannot delegate to the executive branch any of the powers the Constitution gives to Congress. It's not carrying the day right now, but at least three justices seem to want to bring it back. When the court struck down OSHA's vaccine mandate, Justice Neil Gorsuch, joined by Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, said that even if Congress had expressly given OSHA the power to impose a vaccine mandate, that likely would have been unconstitutional. And that is a pretty powerful ruling and a pretty powerful statement. So they're saying Congress did not give OSHA the specific power to create and enforce a vaccine mandate but even if they had, it would have been unconstitutional. And that should tell you quite a lot about where this court sees the separation of powers as defined by the Constitution, which, again, is kind of their job. There are many ways for the conservative court to rein in federal agencies. And while there may not be a clear consensus on precisely which of those avenues to take at any given moment, one way or another, 
federal agencies exerting broad-based powers are already losing and are almost certainly going to keep losing. Staying on the subject of narratives that are absolutely falling apart for the self-described liberal world order, this is from USA Today. Prices don't drop when inflation eases. Why your wallet will be hurting for a while. When talking about inflation, it's important to remember that inflation is a rate that measures how fast prices are rising. If the consumer inflation rate drops from its 40-year high of 8.6% in May, prices are still rising, just not as fast. Consumers won't feel immediate relief even as the inflation rate slows because many of those elevated prices are likely here to stay, said Michael Ashton, managing principal at Enduring Investments in Morristown, New Jersey. The price level has permanently changed, said Ashton. Until your wages catch up to inflation, it will continue to hurt. So that's not exactly inflation is transitory as we were hearing for the better part of last year. And it doesn't exactly sound like the inflation is a good thing argument. And it doesn't sound like the Biden administration and the Fed have this under control. They're essentially saying we raised the price on everything. So if you want your old life back, you're going to have to work a lot harder, which kind of sounds like they're planning on just destroying the wealth of American citizens. And wages have a long way to climb to catch up. In May, inflation adjusted average hourly earnings decreased a seasonally adjusted 3% from a year ago. When combined with a decrease in weekly hours worked, that resulted in a 3.9% decrease in real wages, the Bureau of Labor Statistics said. And the article goes on, but I do want to share one more little piece of it. Why do gas prices drop? Prices of items like gas and food can be volatile due to outside factors, such as the war in Ukraine, that the Federal Reserve can't control. So the Fed tends to exclude food and energy prices and instead concentrate on so-called core inflation, said Nick Rusinoff, a Wharton finance professor. Core inflation includes things like rent, furniture, clothing, and other goods and services. Once core prices go up, generally they don't come down, Rusinoff said. In the last 40 to 50 years, we've never seen deflation in core goods. Most durable goods and services don't really come down in price. Now, are those core goods worth more than they used to be? Obviously not. They're the exact same thing. So then what has happened? Well, the money isn't worth as much as it used to be. Now, there's been a very interesting development regarding the vaccines. This is out of Uruguay, the El Observador newspaper. And the headline is judge ordered the government and Pfizer to present all the information on vaccines against COVID-19 within 48 hours. Subrogated administrative litigation judge Alejandro Riqueri ordered the presidency, the Ministry of Public Health, the State Health Services Administration and Pfizer to present all the information on anti-COVID-19 vaccines within 48 hours, reported MVD Noticias and confirmed by El Observador. The summons is part of a protection process initiated to suspend the application of these vaccines in children. 
A hearing will be held on Wednesday at 9 a.m., where representatives of all the agencies and the company must appear. In the summons, the magistrate exposes the information that they must bring along 15 points. In them, he asks that they present the contract for the purchase of vaccines, state whether they have clauses of civil indemnity or criminal impunity for the suppliers in the event of possible adverse effects, provide extensive detail of the biochemical composition of the vaccines, explain the distribution of the batches and their criteria, specifying which ones are messenger RNA and what meaning they have. It also requests that the possible presence of graphene oxide or nanotechnological elements be reported. In another order, it requires that it be certified and substantiated whether the vaccines are experimental or not, as well as presenting what is scientifically known and not known about the effectiveness of those labeled as vaccines. In addition, they are requested to deliver the official figures that, quote, demonstrate the negative or positive impact of the so-called vaccination on the number of infections and deaths diagnosed with COVID from the start of the campaign to date, end quote, and that it be stated if they have studies, quote, aimed at explaining the notable increase in deaths from COVID-19 as of March 2021 in relation to the previous year. Finally, it asks that the global average age of those who died in Uruguay with a diagnosis of COVID-19 be detailed and how many of those deaths were exclusively caused by the disease. Now, this is obviously great news and a great victory for the people of Uruguay, maybe the people of the world, a very bold and honorable move, it seems, by this judge. And I guess we will see in the next couple of days what actually happens, whether or not these agencies and Pfizer actually turn over this information, or if potentially they will just deny the court's order and try to protect their information. We've seen how this went down in the United States. They wanted to hide all of their documents for 75 years. They didn't want people knowing about the vaccine or about the FDA's decision to allow the vaccine to be given out to people under the emergency use authorization, where they get to claim that COVID is still a public health emergency and that people need to get the vaccine in some way to protect themselves, even though we now know and we have known that the vaccine does not prevent infection, transmission, serious illness, hospitalization or death. The vaccine can't do any of those things. But the FDA and the drug companies, of course, fought all of this. Eventually, the courts sided with some measure of transparency and Pfizer had to begin releasing documents. And the contents of those documents have been absolutely damning. No one is doing better work on this than the group that Naomi Wolf is associated with and in some measure helped build. But she's got this giant team of independent journalists and researchers and doctors and lawyers going through all of the Pfizer documents and bringing cases against these companies for what they have marketed and promoted to the American people at the expense of the short-term health and even life of many of those people. And we have to think severe impact on long-term health at this point. 
Now, I know some people out there will hear the words graphene oxide and nanoparticles and get all hyped up for some serious I told you so's in the next few days. But I have a feeling that they will find some kind of way to make sure that the most damaging information is left out. That has been a pattern for them. But hey, I hope I'm wrong about that. So there's something interesting going on with the potential candidates for 2024. It's becoming pretty clear that the Democrat Party is willing to let Joe Biden float out to sea. And they're trying to give an audition to Gavin Newsom, who is running commercials, political ads in Florida, pitting himself against Ron DeSantis and trying to advertise to Floridians that if they want to have freedom again, they should go to California because California has a governor that cares about the science and is willing to impose his scientific cares on the entire state until he says the pandemic is over. That is what freedom is like. Long term, freedom is only possible if you give up all your freedoms and then you get back just a small portion of those. It's like inflation. The costs rise and then they stay risen. And then hopefully you'll be able to make more money so that you can have the same lifestyle you used to. With the freedoms, they they take the freedoms, then they give some of the freedoms back but you've lost most of the freedoms that they originally took away. You don't expect to have them back because this is the new normal. There's always a new normal that they are prepared to give you. But the new normal will be slightly less bad if you comply with everything they say. So they're doing that on the left. They keep tossing out potential candidates. This will be your 2024 nominee. It's going to be Kamala. It's going to be Hillary. It's going to be Gavin. No, just kidding. Joe Biden is totally healthy and totally capable and still going to be president on inauguration day in 2025. On the Republican side, the mainstream wants the candidate to be anyone but Donald Trump. And of course, that's obvious. The impeachment over the January 6th, very violent insurrection was to try to ensure that Trump could no longer be president, which is a strange thing for people who say that Donald Trump no longer is president, but they never want him to be president ever again. So they will push up Ron DeSantis and Ron DeSantis is a good governor. He may be the best governor in the country, but that doesn't mean that he has somehow or could somehow dethrone Donald Trump. They are pushing a much stranger candidate, though, and it should tell us something about that person himself, that these are the people pushing him. And I'm talking about Glenn Youngkin, who is the new governor of Virginia. He won over Terry McAuliffe last fall in what we were all told was a red wave election. We thwarted the election fraud and turned Virginia from blue to red. At the time, and even before he was elected, I said, I thought the best possible move for the Uniparty would be to let Glenn Youngkin win in Virginia so that they could tell everybody that election fraud is not a thing. The confluence of events made Virginians upset enough with Democrats that they would vote for change. And so in a small margin election, they got Glenn Youngkin 
And now change has happened. Everyone should be quiet. Everyone should be happy with your new governor. There was no election fraud. There has never been election fraud. Everyone look away. Glenn Youngkin is the new star. He's going to appeal to the left of center people in Virginia who were ready for change. They're very happy with Glenn Youngkin. And of course, the Republicans must be happy with Glenn Youngkin because he has an R next to his name. So this article is from Molly Ball in Time, and it's an extremely long article. It's like a half an hour read. And so I'm not going to go through all of it. But if you recall, Molly Ball was the Time magazine writer who last year during the second fake impeachment over the very violent insurrection, put out a piece in time where she laid out the conspiracy to protect Joe Biden's win. She talked about groups like the Transition Integrity Project. She talked about their preparations to have people out in the streets to be able to defend Joe Biden's win. They were preparing for riots if Donald Trump had gotten his way and had the election overturned. It seemed in every way like there was a concerted effort to either keep Joe Biden's quote unquote win or to prepare for civil war. And Molly Ball described that for Time magazine in great detail. This is how she starts her article about Glenn Youngkin. The title of the article is The Education of Glenn Youngkin. Glenn Youngkin is the kind of person who, if you ask him if he knows how to nay-nay, he's going to take it as a challenge. On a Thursday afternoon in late April, the Republican governor of Virginia is touring Code RVA, a diverse magnet school for students interested in tech careers, the sort of place that Youngkin argues can be the linchpin of his conservative education agenda. Craig Butts, a 17-year-old senior, shows the governor his creation, a Super Mario-inspired video game that displays the relative sizes of the planets in the solar system. Then he slyly asks the question, Can I nay-nay? No, Youngkin confesses. Then he gets an idea. And his big, smooth, plasticky face lights up. Can you show me how to nay-nay? Politicians should know better than to dance in public, a rule that perhaps especially applies to a lanky 55-year-old white man in a neat suit and tie. Staffers groan. The first lady grimaces. The lieutenant governor cries out, don't do it. But Yunkin gamely plants his feet, raises a hand, and executes a couple of hip swivels as Butts gives an impromptu hip-hop dance lesson. Before moving on, Yunkin mutters the phrase that could be his signature. How much fun! Affable, fun-loving, up for anything. It's hard not to like Yunkin, a trait that accounts as much as anything for his sudden political celebrity. The previously unknown private equity CEO burst onto the national political scene with his improbable win here last November in a blue trending state that went for President Biden by 10 points in 2020 and where Republicans had not won statewide since 2009. Youngkin not only prevailed, but carried the whole GOP ticket with him, resuscitating his party in a place it had been left for dead. Isn't that incredible? Glenn Youngkin of the red wave of last year is being supported by Molly Ball and Time Magazine and the Uniparty political establishment as a political celebrity 
who is on a path to potentially challenge for the 2024 GOP nomination. Glenn Youngkin is not some beloved figure by the base. He's not a national figure at all, but the media wants to make him one because they think that he is a suitable Republican president. They believe he would successfully represent the Uniparty and that American citizens will just go along with it because he has an R next to his name. And the important change in our society is whether or not the Uniparty communists governing us have a D next to their name or an R next to their name. And there have been all sorts of headlines about this in the last couple of weeks. From the Washington Examiner, GOP Governor Glenn Youngkin expands political operation as 2024 speculation grows. An opinion piece in the Washington Post carries the headline, Why Glenn Youngkin, or someone like him, must run in 2024. Youngkin works to build national profile ahead of potential White House run. That's from the National Review, the very conservative National Review. Also from the Washington Post just last week, Youngkin meets with mega donors amid hints he's mulling White House bid. Now, again, it's better that Glenn Youngkin is the governor of Virginia than, let's say, Terry McAuliffe or any other Democrat. But how much better? That's the question. If Glenn Youngkin is as much a uniparty establishment politician as all this positive media would seem to indicate, then how substantial was this win last fall? You got to remember on the same night in a governor's race in New Jersey, Phil Murphy was able to eke out a win in a state that we're told is deep, deep blue. So in New Jersey, we were told there was a red wave, but it just wasn't red enough. You know, New Jersey. And of course, they can't let Phil Murphy go. I mean, Terry McAuliffe is a zero. Terry McAuliffe is just a Democrat Party hack who has been around forever. They didn't really need him in that spot. What is Terry McAuliffe going to do? He's not going to have a future presidential run. He may be a Democratic Party power player, but in politics, in elected politics, he's basically a zero. And while I have been firmly of the belief the entire time that election fraud was absolutely a factor in that election and that they got the outcome that they desired, I'm still not saying that people should not go out and vote. It is important for people to influence the process however they are able to influence the process. And if as much influence in the process as we can muster is to have that show of force and make it clear that we are controlling the narrative and that the democratic governance in these states is insufficient. It's important that we don't fool ourselves into believing that the occasional MAGA win or the occasional unlikely Republican win is evidence that the process isn't a problem and that the process can be simply defeated just by showing up to vote. That does not seem to be the case anywhere. And we are seeing example after example of election irregularities. And Jovan Hutton Pulitzer made a good point. He was on Patel Patriots podcast last week, and he was pointing out that 
you know, while there is election fraud and while voter fraud exists, but is a smaller problem, truthfully, it's election fraud, the system itself. He was saying that what we need to focus on is maladministration of the election, that the people running the elections did not follow the rules and laws in place that they were supposed to follow in order to be able to certify their elections and that the certifications in themselves were wrongly made. The elections were run in unlawful ways and outside of the bounds of the rules put in place by state legislatures. And that that in itself is what makes the elections uncertifiable, if I'm understanding him correctly. And I think I am. But regardless, the system does not exist in its current form to yield an outcome that is representative of the will of the voters. And that is the problem. Fixing 2020 needs to be the focus until we reach the point in the process where it becomes clear that fixing 2020 prior to 2022 is not possible. I have not reached that point. I don't believe we are at that point yet. A lot of people thought we've been at that point the entire time. And hey, maybe they'll prove to be right and I'll prove to be wrong. But full public acceptance of the fact that the 2020 election was stolen and that many, many other elections have been stolen, were stolen and are still being stolen. That's what we need. And when the public understands that to a large enough degree, people are going to wake up and take note of it. People do not want to admit to themselves that their vote doesn't matter. And they especially don't want to admit that after having spent two years calling everyone else crazy. They also don't want to wrestle with the implications of that stolen election and the fact that the American public actually does support Donald Trump. They don't have the majority they imagine. The media are now running Glenn Youngkin and Gavin Newsom as potential 2024 presidential candidates, hoping that enough of the clueless centrists who are still completely addicted to the central narrative will see both of those men much the way the media portrayed Joe Biden as a return to normalcy. These would be the adults getting back in the room. And so to do that, they're going to make Gavin Newsom look like someone who is prepared to export all the good parts of California to the rest of the nation and to make Glenn Youngkin Barack Obama fied, basically a political celebrity. We're going to turn Glenn Youngkin into a political celebrity by talking about how he's doing TikTok dances with 17 year old high school students. And you got to have the middle-aged white guy dancing to hip hop. That's how you know that while he's not part of that culture, he certainly understands and appreciates it. They've run this playbook over and over and over again. And now they're doing it with a candidate who was sold to us as some MAGA Republican that won in a red wave. And I hate to be bursting bubbles, but that just clearly is not true. Now, the balance of power in the UK seems to be under threat. There seems to be a coordinated takedown attempt of Boris Johnson right now. And obviously, we're going to have to wait and see how the situation develops. But the Daily Mail has this headline out this afternoon. Is this finally the end for Boris? Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid quit with savage attack on Johnson's lack of integrity 
competence and leadership as embattled prime minister returns to Downing Street amid threat of more resignations tonight. Boris Johnson is teetering on the brink tonight after Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid both dramatically quit his cabinet in a seemingly coordinated attack. The chancellor and health secretary dropped their bombshells on the PM within minutes of each other, shortly after he issued a groveling apology over his appointment of shamed MP Chris Pincher. In his resignation letter, Mr. Sunak told the PM that we cannot continue like this. Acknowledging that he might be waving goodbye to his ministerial career for good, he added, the public rightly expect government to be conducted properly, competently, and seriously. Meanwhile, Mr. Javid publicly questioned Mr. Johnson's integrity, competence, and ability to act in the national interest. Keir Starmer immediately demanded a snap general election, saying, let's have a fresh start for Britain. The double-pronged assault leaves the PM struggling desperately to cling on and waiting anxiously to see if any of his other senior ministers will follow suit. Deputy Prime Minister Dominic Raab, Foreign Secretary Liz Truss, Home Secretary Priti Patel, Defense Secretary Ben Wallace, and Work and Pensions Secretary Therese Coffey have declared they will not be resigning. Notably, Michael Gove, who notoriously stabbed Mr. Johnson in the back to end his leadership hopes in 2016, does not appear to be jumping ship. However, there has been an ominous silence so far from others, such as Nadim Zahawi. And a series of ministerial aides and other junior posts have announced that they are going. Tory Vice Chair Bim Afalami announced his exit live on TV while former loyalist Jonathan Gullis and Saqib Bhatti said they had stepped down from PPS roles. Lord Frost, previously Mr. Johnson's key Brexit envoy, said Mr. Sunak and Mr. Javid had done the right thing and that the premier could not change. Even cabinet ministers staying in place sounded a gloomy tone privately, with one telling Mail Online that some of their closest colleagues had run out of sympathy with the PM. Brexit Minister Jacob Rees-Mogg was sent out to bat in broadcast studios tonight, insisting there is no constitutional reason for the PM to go. Asked whether he would really survive a fresh Tory confidence vote, Mr. Rees-Mogg told Sky News he might very well win another. Mr. Rees-Mogg and Mr. Johnson's mood after the resignations was business as usual, and he still hoped he would beat Robert Walpole's record of 21 years in number 10. So this looks to me as though it has all the makings of a mass coordinated media effort to undermine Boris Johnson and whatever grip on power he has in the UK. And I can't help but wonder if it has something to do with this. This is an article from iNews in the UK from June 27th of this year. The headline. Northern Ireland protocol plans to tear up Brexit deal will happen by end of the year. Boris Johnson warns EU. The government's plan to tear up the Brexit deal will take effect by the end of this year unless the EU agrees to compromise. Boris Johnson is warned ahead of the first commons vote on the controversial proposals. The Northern Ireland protocol bill will have its second reading on Monday evening when MPs are asked to approve the principle behind the legislation before proposing amendments on the detail. Opposition parties are set to vote against the bill, but it remains unclear how many conservative backbenchers will oppose it.
Speaking at the G7 summit in Germany, the prime minister insisted that the protocol plans had not been raised in his talks with European leaders. He told reporters, the interesting thing is how little this conversation is being had here. Mr. Johnson is not believed to have discussed the matter in one-on-one talks with Emmanuel Macron and Olaf Scholz, and those are the leaders of France and Germany. Defending the legislation, the prime minister said, what we're trying to do is fix something that I think is very important to our country, which is the balance of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. You've got one tradition, one community that feels that things really aren't working in a way that they like or understand and unnecessary barriers to trade from Great Britain to Europe. All we are saying is that you get rid of those whilst not in any way endangering the EU single market. Asked whether plans could be enacted by the end of 2022, he said, yes, I think we could do it very fast, Parliament willing. But what would be even better is if we just get some of that flexibility we need in our conversations with EU negotiator Maros Sefcovic. So we remain optimistic. Government insiders see the bill as a way of encouraging the EU to return to the negotiating table and soften its current position. But Brussels is likely to step up legal threats, including a possible trade war if the UK presses ahead with its protocol plans. Now, I'm certainly not alone in seeing Boris Johnson as some kind of wild card. He was initially presented as the UK's Trump. He was going to guide the UK through Brexit, and he would be the sort of conservative who might tilt the balance. In the last few years, there have been consistent scandals from holding parties at 10 Downing while the rest of the country was locked down for COVID. And now you have what is obviously an all out assault on his position. They have taken no confidence votes before that has not worked out. Boris Johnson has stayed in his position. But think of this in the same way as we were often presented when members of Donald Trump's administration would resign or especially resign together for similar reasons. Whenever there was an effort to completely undermine Donald Trump's power by someone leaving his administration and going out immediately to tell the news what a disgrace it is to see Donald Trump exercising power in this or that way. It should be clear that when the establishment, which is always marked by almost the full totality of the left and then part of what we're told is the right, usually that's an indication that the person they're trying to take down is doing something they really don't like. And so the real question here is, what is that? And I would imagine that it is probably this Brexit deal. But we will see over the next few days and weeks how this situation develops. And finally, let's go back to the Daily Mail once again. China claims to have developed an AI that can read the minds of Communist Party members to determine how receptive they are to thought education in since-deleted article. China has reportedly created an artificial intelligence system that can assess the loyalty of Communist Party members. And we have that here, too. We just have 17-year-olds ask new governors whether or not they can nay-nay. 
According to Didi Tang, a reporter for The Times in Beijing, the system has been developed by researchers at Hefei Comprehensive National Science Center. Now, The Times in Beijing is part of the People's Daily Network of news outlets in China and are widely considered to be state media outlets for the Chinese Communist Party. So when you read an article from a source like that, it's good to remember that while we are told they are state media, we have state media here, too. And our state media here is essentially CNN and NPR and MSNBC and to a large extent, Fox News. All of the major mainstream media outlets are propaganda state media serving the interests of the global communist order that. One of Biden's advisors, Brian Deese, last week called the liberal world order. It can analyze facial expressions and brainwaves of Communist Party members to determine how receptive they are to thought education. Tang says the technology was detailed in an article that was uploaded to the Internet on July 1st and deleted shortly afterward. The article said, On one hand, it can judge how party members have accepted thought and political education. On the other hand, it will provide real data for thought and political education so it can be improved and enriched. So they are basically A-B testing communist propaganda on their own party members and measuring how effective that propaganda is. Now, is that being mirrored exactly in the United States. Yeah, it is. But we can talk about more of that in just a second. So on one hand, the technology is trying to determine how effective the propaganda is. How many of the members will go along and believe it? How many of them will go out and repeat the slogans? Are the slogans working? Are people becoming more convinced that the communist leadership is taking them in the right direction? But the technology is also enabling them to be able to refine their propaganda until it is the most effective form, because if the propaganda is not effective enough, then people might realize they're being lied to. The AI tech will solidify confidence and determination of Communist Party members to be grateful to the party, listen to the party and follow the party. Hefei Comprehensive National Science Center has reportedly encouraged 43 Communist Party members who are also on the research team to test the tech. (laughs) Imagine creating that tech so that the totalitarian Chinese Communist Party can find out whether or not you personally are loyal enough. Hey, guys, can you create some technology so we can find out if party members are loyal? Oh, thanks. Excellent work. Glad you created all that technology. Now, first, what we need to do is have you all test it on yourselves. It would be hilarious if one of them completely fails the test and they're like, no, no, you know what? The technology, it just doesn't work. I am a very, very faithful servant of the Communist Party. It's the technology that is just making it seem otherwise. So we failed. We're going to need some more time. And uh, please don't put me in a concentration camp. A video published with the article, which has also been deleted, showed a researcher entering a kiosk, sitting in front of a screen and looking at articles promoting party policy and achievements. The kiosk can see the researcher's expressions, possibly via surveillance cameras, Tang says. 
It's unclear if the brainwave reading technology is situated in the kiosk or how the whole system would be rolled out to monitor the millions of Communist Party members in the country. But it appears that reading people's brainwaves is not new to China. Back in 2018, the South China Morning Post reported that brain scanning technology was being used on factory workers in Hangzhou. This involved using brain reading helmets to read a worker's emotions and artificial intelligence algorithms to detect emotional spikes such as depression, anxiety or rage. China's ruling Communist Party, led by President Xi Jinping, allegedly believes that thought and political education are essential to party loyalty. The party already has an indoctrination app for its members called Kui Shi Qiangguo. I hope I said that right. Or study to make China strong. The app forces its 96.77 million members to earn points by reading articles, watching videos and answering quizzes on communist heroes. It tracks the amount of time users spend browsing inspirational quotes from President Jinping and watching short videos of his speeches and travels. Members are able to redeem their scores for gifts such as pastries and tablets, AFP previously reported. Meanwhile, China's government has come under increasing security for high-tech surveillance, from facial recognition-enabled security cameras to apps used by police to extract personal information from smartphones at checkpoints. China is famous for tracking its citizens using the latest technology, notably a black mirror-like social rating system to restore morality and blacklist untrustworthy citizens. Last year, it was revealed China has also developed an AI prosecutor that can charge people with crimes with more than 97% accuracy. This system, which was trained using 17,000 real-life cases from 2015 to 2020, is able to identify and press charges for the eight most common crimes in Shanghai. These are provoking trouble, a term used to stifle dissent in China, credit card fraud, gambling crimes, dangerous driving, theft, fraud, intentional injury, and obstructing official duties. Now, they also tag a little segment onto the end of this article that was other related research about being blacklisted by China's social credit system. Worse than jail. A man who has been penalized by China's social credit system said it's worse than going to jail. The man, identified as David Kong, told South China Morning Post in 2019 that he was banned from taking the high-speed train because he was officially declared a deadbeat by authorities. This group of 3.6 million discredited individuals who earned poor ratings, mostly for refusing to pay their debts, are disqualified from spending on luxuries, including renting a flat, traveling on a plane, or on a fast train in China. It's even worse than doing time because there's at least a limit to a prison sentence, Kong told South China Morning Post. Being on the list means that as long as you can't clear your debts in full, your name will always be there. Kong was declared a discredited individual in 2015 after his book publishing business failed. He said he had borrowed 1.6 million yuan, which is about 180,000 British pounds, and could not pay it back. The social credit system rates citizens based on their daily behavior, and this could range from their bank credit to their social media activities. With a tagline of, once discredited, everywhere restricted, it vows to punish untrustworthy citizens in as many ways as possible. 
Train passengers could face travel bans if they endanger railway safety. Smoke on high-speed trains, sell on tickets, produce fake tickets, dodge tickets, and occupy unassigned seats, according to People's Daily. Air passengers could be banned from future flights for behaviors including spreading rumors about terror attacks, breaking into runways, assaulting the crew, and causing disruption on flights. Well, I got to say, that last thing sounds kind of more legitimate. You shouldn't do those things. But occupying unassigned seats on a train gets you put on a list and harms your social credit. That's pretty severe. Now, the idea that an AI prosecutor is going to begin charging people for crimes while only having a 97% success rate. Now that might sound high, but it's really not. That means out of every thousand people it charges with a crime, 30 of them didn't commit the crime and are very likely going to have to defend themselves for something they're already assumed guilty of doing. That even kind of blows past thought crime. This is essentially prosecuting crime because you have a certain set of indicators that you might have committed a crime. And we know how these things work. They start in communist China, and then they go quickly to California. And then from California, they go everywhere. California exists to mainstream all of these terrible ideas to the entirety of the Western world. Oh, how I miss it. But as I said earlier, we're not only on a path toward this in the United States. In many ways, we are already there. We have all of these apps and all of these different aspects of our lives becoming more centralized in the digital world. And a lot of that is because over the past decade, people have taken it as a given that they're going to sign into any number of apps or websites using their Google ID or their Facebook ID or their Twitter account. And so now those apps have the access to who you are in the social media realm and the social media sites have access to what you do on all those other platforms that you've signed into using your Facebook accounts. And so as long as that information is shared in both directions, as it is, all you would need to understand is that that information is also shared with the government. And there is no reason to believe it isn't. We know that it is in different sorts of ways, but maybe not the totality. Although you probably have to think at this point that it is all of it. And with all of this in mind, I have been thinking over the weekend and recently about what the ripcord is that Greg Phillips has discussed in various places. I'm talking about Greg Phillips, the guy with the beard from 2000 Mules, who is handling a lot of the data that was analyzed for the True the Vote project that was featured in 2000 Mules. Now, if I'm understanding correctly, what they did was that they got one large set of data of location data about where cell phone devices were and to filter that data so that they could use it for the study they were performing. They used geofencing. They would set it up so that they had 
a defined fence around the drop boxes and around the NGOs and would track the devices that went inside that fence repeatedly. And I hope I'm describing that accurately. I believe that I am. Now, what I'm thinking about is that larger set of data, all the tracking data that they purchased. They have said before that they plan to drop all of their data onto a publicly available website that it can be accessed by anyone. He has also said that they intend to release, and now it's only within the next two weeks. I think it is supposed to be by the end of next week. The additional revelations that Greg Phillips has said in multiple places could have 10 times the impact of 2000 mules on how the population views its elections, not only here, but I think he's hinted that this is a worldwide issue. And so I think it's possible that maybe this ripcord thing only has to do with elections, but if they're dropping all of that location data and people are able to analyze where, for instance, their spouses might be or their boyfriends or girlfriends or family members would be at any given point. If that's possible, then maybe that gives us some hint into why they have been so careful with this information, because the impact could be felt in a more personal way than just the elections. And thinking about all this reminded me of that South Park episode where they released everyone's search history and entire communities just began melting down. Now, I don't think that's what's going to happen. But on the other hand, we have a government that we know tracks all of that stuff, all that data about what we do, our locations, our conversations, who we're with. The things we look at online, the people we interact with online, man, if all of that was out there, maybe everyone will just choose to respect everyone else's privacy, but I kind of doubt it. It would certainly produce some sort of moral reckoning across society. I have no doubt about that. And hopefully that would turn out to be a good thing, but I'm not sure any of us wants to find out. Nonetheless, it seems like a whole lot of storylines are coming to a head at this point and beginning to interconnect in ways that we didn't see before. And I could be way off here, but I think we are in store for quite a few revelations over the coming weeks. And I am definitely keeping an eye on what Greg Phillips has going on and what Jovan Pulitzer has going on because they have both given indications that something major is approaching quickly on the horizon. I will be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!